Uh, you'll want to have your Bibles open to John chapter 15. We are in the second half of that chapter. Uh, we started the first half last week and we're diving in. But if you're jumping into the middle of it, it's sort of like coming into the middle of a movie. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Uh, either you show up at the theater a little bit late or your family has started the movie without you and you come halfway in and you're like, who are these people? What are these characters? And so maybe jumping into the middle of uh, John, you might wonder what's gone before it. So uh, there are four stories of Jesus' life in the New Testament, and John is a long one, uh, 21 chapters long. And he tells us at the end of the book why he wrote this book. His thesis statement, if you will, is in John 20, 31. He said, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's why I wrote the book. Uh, these 21 long chapters, I wrote it so that you would believe in Jesus and believing that you might have life in his name. And so that's why we're teaching through the book is so that everybody who hears the gospel message would come to know and believe and understand that Jesus exists, that he is who he said he was. And in fact, that's the reason why our church exists. Uh, it's the reason every gospel-centered church across the country exists is to make much of Jesus, to lift up the name of Jesus, and to ask the most important question that every person has to ask and answer is, what have you done with Jesus? And so that's what this book is all about. So it's a long book, uh, two halves. The first half deal with the first three years of Jesus' life. The second half is slow motion down literally into just the last seven days of Jesus' life. And then if you go even slower yet and you pull it in tighter to where we are right now, we are in the midst of uh, the Passion Week, but specifically the night that has come to be called the Last Supper. And so uh, we put this uh, picture up on the screen a, a few weeks ago. Uh, da Vinci's very famous, although we said inaccurate painting uh, of the Last Supper. And, and this image that is known to millions of people around the world of this gathering. And so Jesus is having a very intimate conversation with Beginning with the 12, Judas leaves, and then with the 11. So chapter 13 opens with Jesus knowing uh, that he is going to leave, and he pours out his heart to his disciples with this one big idea. And we've said it again and again, this five chapters, I'm leaving you, I'm leaving you, I'm leaving you, 25 times, in fact, more than 25 times. He says it in various ways, shapes, or form. I'm leaving, I'm going away, I'm going to the Father. And then he says, and I'm leaving you here. I'm going out of the world, but I'm leaving you in the world, and I want you to know, and I want you to be prepared for life without me. And so John 13, it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, right? There's that key phrase, I'm leaving, I'm going back to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved him to the end. And this entire conversation, these five chapters, is to equip these men for what is coming next, that Jesus is indeed leaving them. He has finished his public ministry in just a few days, death, burial, resurrection, and then his ascension. And this conversation, I'm leaving you, but not without a plan. And so to set it up, just go back a few weeks and remind yourself of where we've been. Uh, he begins uh, after Judas has left the room. He washes their feet. He reveals Judas is going to deny him. Judas leaves. Now it's just the 11. And he begins to speak to them tenderly, these words of comfort. And he says, you know what? Comfort each one, uh, one another in your love. I'm leaving you, but you've got one another. So love on one another as I've loved you, so love each other. Greater love is no one than this. Lay down your life for one another. So comfort each other in the love that you have. Comfort each other also in the fact that I'm going to return. I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm giving you this promise. I'm going to my father's house, bridegroom language. I'm going to build a room on my father's house and then I'm gonna come again and I'm gonna take you 
to be in my father's house like the groom and the bride. And comfort yourself in this promise that the presence of the Holy Spirit is going to be with you. I'm leaving, but the Holy Spirit is going to come right back and he will be here with you. Another comfort. So three words of comfort. I picked up on a, a little comment this week in a commentary. I hadn't seen it before. F.F. Bruce makes this comment that Jesus begins first by talking to them tenderly as little children. Uh, you see it there in verse 13, chapter 13, 33, little children. It's not pejorative. It's a, a term of tender engagement. Comfort each other in my love. Comfort each other in my promise. Comfort each other in my presence. And then he turns and chapter 15 and 16, he now begins to speak words of challenge to them. And it's like he talked to them as little children. Now I'm going to talk to you as men. I'm going to talk to you as disciples who will become my apostles. And I'm going to challenge you that I've got some work for you to do. So that was last weekend. I've got an assignment for you, and it is to bear abundant fruit, much fruit. By this will I be glorified in your fruitful labor. And so that was last weekend's text. You're going to get your roots down deep. You're going to remain in me. You're going to abide in me. It's a joyful, abundant text. So like branches in the vineyard attached to the vine and the life-giving sap flows through it and there's joy and there's peace and there's fruitfulness in your life. We understand this really well. Uh, British Columbia is famous around the world for our vineyard industry, our wine industry, and right now is harvest season. The last few weeks, the grapes have been coming off the vines. They've been going into vats. They're getting made into wine. Some are left on the vines to get frozen a little bit, make ice wine a little bit later. We understand this imagery that if the vine is attached to the branch, the, the vine actually does very little. It just stays attached and the life-giving sap flows out through it and the fruit is produced. And Jesus says in the same way, stay intimately connected with me and you will bear fruit, abundant fruit. It was a really joyful passage. You'll be filled with joy in your lives and you'll be characterized by love and peace. You'll have nothing to be troubled about. My peace will be with you. Love, 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 four times love. Fruit, abundant fruit, seven times fruitfulness, abundance. Fruit, 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 fruit. Don't be troubled twice. Don't be troubled. Live tightly connected to me and you'll have great joy. You'll have an abiding peace. Woo! So far, so good. And then the next verse, the world will hate you. What? Man, it is a hard right turn. Joy, 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 peace, love, abundance, fruitfulness, great. Stay connected to me. And then verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they'll do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes... Whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So we hit chapter 15, verse 18. I need to tell you some things. The world's going to hate you. And I'm telling you, chapter 16, in advance, so that when it happens, you're not caught off guard. You're not surprised. You'll remember, oh yeah, Jesus told us this. And he uses a classic setup of if and when. I don't know if you followed it along as you're reading through it with me there. You see all those if, 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 six ifs. Uh, Verse 18, if the world hates you. Verse 19, if you were of the world. Uh, Verse 20, if they persecuted me. If they kept my word. Verse 22, if I had not come to them. Verse 24, if I had not shown them my works. If, 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 if. And the idea was uh, if the world hates you, and it will. You're not of the world. And so they, they persecuted me. Uh, they're going to persecute you. They, all these ifs. And then he wraps it up with two when statements in chapter 16. The hour is coming. When? When they kill you, they think they're going to be doing a service to me. Uh, the hour is coming. And, and so when that hour comes, when it comes, when it happens, guaranteed, not if, but when. No more ifs, ands, or buts. It's a statement of certainty. And so the main text, the main point, rather, of this text is so crystal clear. The big idea is right there in front of us that we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when we face opposition for our faith in Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus is saying there are troubling days ahead, guys. You're going to face hatred and opposition because of me. Now, he says it in three ways, uh, three lenses. Hated because of Jesus, hated without excuse and without cause, and hated but still standing. That's how we're going to break this text into those three chunks. Hated, first of all, because of Jesus. Uh, Verse 18 to 21, which we just read, the first four ifs. If and when the world hates you, remember it hated me. Verse 19, if you were of the world, it wouldn't hate you, but... Because of your association with me, Jesus says, they hate you too. Verse 20, if they persecuted me, uh, they're going to persecute you. The servant is not greater than the master. You're in good company. If they had kept my word, they would listen to you as well. But they didn't listen to me. They won't listen to you. Verse 21, all these things they'll do to you because of me and the Father. Underlining all of it is they don't know, they won't know, they won't acknowledge the one who sent me. Now, the first question, of course, you read into this text is like, Jesus, what's with all the hate? Hate, 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 hate. Seven times hate. Uh, I read it this week, and when I said that, hate, 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 reminded me of the Christmas movie. We're all going to be watching it pretty soon. Hate, 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 double hate. Loathe entirely, right? It's familiar? Anybody else have a sense of humor like I do? No, okay. (laughs) Never mind. Just pass that on. What is all this hate about Jesus? 
Why would people hate the Christian and the Christian community? What is it about the Christian community that stirs up opposition? And so we could throw up a, a, a few words of sociological issues on the screen or pull out the chalkboard and scratch some on the board. I could throw up these words, authority, identity, sexual ethics, sanctity of life. Any one of those would be enough to stir up a little bit of a controversy. To say, is our authority from within, or is there an outside authority to whom we answer? Is our identity something that is given to us by the creator? It is in the Imago Dei, it is established in us, or is our identity based upon whomever our psychological self wants to be? What about those repressive sexual ethics that you seem to hang on to? What do you mean I can't sleep with somebody I'm not married to? Would you Christians just shut up about abortion and medical assistance and dying? You see, the imago Dei, the image of God that is stamped onto every human creature, runs a headlong collision course with our culture of death, that every human life is intrinsically valuable. And we could talk about those issues for a long time. In fact, late last spring, we did a five-week series, a topical series on those very subjects. If you happen to miss that, you want to hear what we talked about, foundations for flourishing. How do we handle these kind of cultural issues? But actually, that's not in the text right now. I mean, it's there by implication. But the key opposition in this text is actually rooted deeper. It's rooted in a theological issue. The root underneath all of those issues that we may need to talk about is the refusal to acknowledge God, Jesus, and the Father. It's there four times. It's in verse 21, verse 23, verse 24, and again in chapter 16, verse 3. The Father and the Son, they're rejecting you, my followers, because they have already rejected me and my Father. And because they've rejected me, of course they're going to reject you, my followers. Uh, back in John chapter 7, Jesus was talking to his brothers. And he said, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's why the world hates me, Jesus said. The world hates is ultimately rooted in a rejection of God. It's theological in nature. And it goes to the very core existence of our human existence. These questions, do you believe that God exists? Number one, do you believe there is a God? Do you believe there is a creator? Or do you believe another worldview that says, no, we are just some cosmic accident that happened out in the universe billions of years ago, and we are here by mere chance? How you answer that primary fundamental question sets the trajectory for all of the other conversations that will follow. Now, most of our conversations don't start at that level because we like getting down into the weeds, right? And the world loves to get down into the weeds. Like, let's just talk about those issues. Let's talk about authority, identity, sex, and life. Why won't you Christians just stay out of the way? And if we start the conversation at that level, we for sure are going to have a fight right from the start. We have to start at a much different level, a higher level, if you will, or a much deeper level with the questions of meaning and purpose and design. We have to step way back and ask ourselves a question, what does it mean to be a human at the highest level, what does it mean to be a human? Where did we come from? How did we get here? What is the meaning and purpose of our life? And fundamentally, that is a theological question. It goes to metaphysical thoughts. I don't believe in your God. Therefore, I don't believe your worldview either. Or it's like Billy Joel used to sing, keep it to yourself. It's my life. Thank you very much. 
And the greatest challenge in all of this is that we've been sent on a mission. Jesus will say at the end of this book, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He will pray for us. I'm praying, Father, don't take him out of the world, just keep him from the evil one. And he sends us predominantly as salt and light. Now, if you know what salt and light do, you pour salt on something to keep it from going rotten. And you turn on the light so you can see in the darkness and to expose the darkness. And if you don't want the light on, then you're not going to like the light. So don't be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me first. Secondly, hated without excuse and without cause. Those next three, four verses, 22 to 25, they wouldn't be guilty if, if I hadn't come and spoken to them and if I hadn't done the works among them that I did, but now they are guilty. In verse 25, this fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. They will hate me simply because they hate me. They will hate me without any cause. Psalm 69, save me, O God, a messianic psalm. The waters are up to my neck. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mightier those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. And, and Psalm 35 adds an interesting little twist to it. They hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. What an interesting twist. Why would you go after the quiet people? I mean, who are the quiet in the land? Like I think of the Amish people. Like why would we go persecute them? Those who are just minding their own business, living quietly, and yet they go after them and they devise words of deceit. And once again, in this text, the key issue is a theological issue. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also, it says. They've heard my words, they've seen my works, but yet they refuse to come to me. Now, John is famous for his repetition. He is trying to make a point. And over and over again, he circles back around on issues time and time again. And this is one that he comes back to again and again. And throughout this book, we've seen it last year and this year as well. This theme of him not entrusting himself to the crowds because he knew that they were fickle. So last year, chapter two, first miracle, wouldn't entrust himself to the crowds. This, just a few weeks ago, chapter 12, they're coming into town on uh, the triumphal entry, Hosanna, all the crowds. And he's like, but he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew in just a few days, the majority of them would be crying crucify. They would turn on him. They didn't really believe. They just came for the show. They just came for the religious buzz. They had no intention of truly following him. Chapter 14, the same thing. Thaddeus asked the question, how is it that we will see and they don't see? How come we've got eyes and ears and we understand that somehow they can see you and they don't get it? And Jesus quotes from an Old Testament text. We quoted it a couple of weeks ago, but I'll put it up there again. They stick their fingers in their ears. This is from Isaiah. They stick their fingers in their ears so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look. So they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. What Jesus is getting at is people choose to hate the work of God, the presence of God, the people of God, not because of a lack of knowledge, but because they have actually willfully chosen to screw their eyes shut and to plug their ears, stick their fingers in their ears, don't want to hear it, nah, 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 stop talking. And one of the most sobering texts, one of the most damning texts is Romans 1.21. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did know him. They have a Christian memory. 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And honestly, friends, I think that this represents the story of millions of North Americans right now. Millions and millions of North Americans who have a Christian memory, who were raised in Sunday school or Bible camp. They may be part of a church, maybe even baptized in members, but have long since abandoned their faith. I think this is the story of many of them finally walking away and turning their back. And Jesus says, these people don't want to know the one who sent me. Blind eyes can't see, stopped up ears won't listen. It's like the thing that I say to all my Dutch friends, wooden shoes, wooden head, wooden listen. They did it willingly. There's no good reason, there's no moral reason, there's no economic reason to persecute the quiet in the land unless, unless their very worldview offends you. So let's illustrate it. Some of you will remember the story a year ago. Football coach down in Australia is appointed as CEO of the Essendon Football Club, a guy named Andrew Thurburn. He made it one day as the president of this team and then was forced to resign. You're like, oh my goodness, what scandal could this guy possibly have pulled off in one day that he had to resign? Well, the scandal was he was part of a church that believes in biblical marriage. That was the scandal. You can Google it. There's tons of information on the line, but read, here is his statement. Just listen. Yesterday was one of the proudest days of my life. To be offered the role of CEO of the Essendon Football Club, whom I followed since I was a boy, was a profound honor. However, today it became clear to me that my personal Christian faith is not tolerated or permitted in the public square, at least by some and perhaps by many. I was being required to compromise beyond a level that my conscience allowed. People should be able to hold different views on complex personal and moral matters and be able to live and work together even with those differences and always with respect. Despite my own leadership record, within hours of my appointment being announced, the media and leaders of our community had spoken. They made it clear that my Christian faith and my association with the church are unacceptable in our culture if you want to hold a leadership position in society. It grieves me greatly. Not just for myself, but for our entire society. I believe we're poorer for the loss of our great freedoms of thought and conscience and belief that make for a truly diverse and just and respectful community. My faith is central to who I am. Since I came to faith in Jesus 20 years ago, I've seen profound change in my life. And I believe God's made me a better husband, father, and friend, and has helped me to become a better leader. Because at the center of my faith is the belief that you should create a community and care for people because they are created by and loved by God and have a deep intrinsic value. It spread around the globe really quickly. All the Christian sites picked it up, told that story. It was a little bit shocking. Hated without cause. But also hated and still standing. There's hope in this text. Verse 26 and on through the end of 16.4. Yes, opposition is going to rise, but you know what? The Holy Spirit is coming. The helper is coming, and he will bear witness, and so will you. Now, you might wonder on reading it, it's like, uh, where does this fit in? It's like you're in the middle of this text, trials, tribulations, and then this little drop, a shift in subject 
the Holy Spirit. It's just dropped into the middle. But if you're reading the conversation in one setting as it would be given, so instead of spreading it out over like eight or 10 weeks like we're doing week by week, you've already forgotten a conversation before. Read it in one setting and you might catch the echo that goes back to the opposite statement Jesus made back in chapter 14. In chapter 14, verse 30, he said, you know what? The ruler of this world is coming. Satan is coming. But he has no claim on me. The ruler of the world is coming. The enemy is coming. He has no claim. The helper is coming. He'll be my witness and so will be you. The enemy is coming. The helper is coming. The enemy is coming. The helper is coming. The enemy is coming. The helper is coming. And the enemy is a defeated foe. The helper will be your source of strength. He will be your comfort, your guide and all truth. In other words, he will say to the world, bring your worst but the Holy Spirit will sustain you. He will keep you from falling away. And so you fast forward into the days ahead and the disciples who become the apostles, they begin to preach Pentecost in Acts 4. They're under interrogation by the leaders. They set them free. They can't arrest them at that point in time. They go back to a prayer meeting and they say there, and when they'd prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The Spirit fills them, they speak with boldness. Next chapter, they get arrested, and at night, an angel comes and opens the prison doors, and they're back in the temple square preaching, and the leaders are like, what are you doing here preaching? We told you to shut up, and they're like, but we got to obey God. We got to obey God more than we got to obey you. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, God exalted him, and then look at this, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. Right there is the phrase Jesus said. The Spirit will bear witness, and you will bear witness. You will stand strong. You will overcome this opposition. So let's just try to apply it a little bit. It's significant to me that this same John wrote the last book of the Bible, the Revelation of Jesus. And that book opens with seven letters to seven churches, praise and rebuke, but each one of those seven churches is given this challenge to the ones who conquer to the ones who overcome, to the ones who are victorious, the various translations say. The, the Greek word is literally the word Nike. Did you know that that's a Greek word? It's the word victory, Nikeo, Nike. To those who are victorious, to those who overcome. And the context there is saying, you know what? The lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah is going to open these seals. He's going to keep you sound. The lamb who was slain, John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You're not going to do this on your own. You need the power of the slain lamb of God. The one who said to you, I've done this for you. You can walk in my strength. My life lived through you. You can too overcome because it will be me doing it through you, not you. Now, a verse that we come back to again and again, Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. I'm dead. I've been crucified but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I really think what Jesus is getting at in this promise is this, you can't kill me if I'm already dead. You can't kill me if I'm already died. And I have died. I have been crucified in Christ. I have laid my life down. I have given it over to him. I have surrendered it to him. Or in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, and I know we've quoted this many times, but it's my favorite question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Man, that is an important question. And then the answer is this, that I am not my own. That's what my comfort is. 
I belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sin with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Woo! You're like, awesome. The challenge with words like that, of course, and some of you have actually memorized those words, is not to speak them, but to actually live them. My life is not my own. I belong to somebody else. I'm dead. I died. I was crucified with Christ. And the life that you see me living now, I am living because of the power of Jesus being lived through me. The text is telling us there's trouble ahead. And Jesus saying, if you're going to truly follow me, you'll be opposed. It's not insignificant to me that we hit this text on a series of baptism weekends. So 55 individuals in these last, these three weekends, 11 last week over in Mission, 35 this weekend here at Downs, another nine next weekend at East and Central. And believers' baptism by immersion is a graphic declaration regarding our identity in Christ that my life has changed. It's been transformed by the work of God. I was walking away from God. I was a rebel. I was trapped in my sin. I was in need of forgiveness, but I have turned, and in turning to him, I have been given an entire new identity. I have become a new person. The old me is dead, buried, and gone. That's what baptism pictures. The old me going under the waters, dead, buried, and gone, raised to new life in Christ. What's significant, friends, is in the West, I think it's lost some of its oomph because we don't suffer persecution here. We are told in Muslim nations today where there are literally tens of thousands of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus, many through dreams and visions, that persecution in the Muslim country does not begin until they go public with baptism. Nick and Ruth Rifkin are a missionary couple. They have served for over 30 years in access-restricted countries and conducted hundreds of interviews with new believers. And they would say that before baptism, a seeker, quote-unquote, is free to study the Bible, listen to Christian radio, go to Christian services, all that kind of stuff. They might get a little bit of resistance, but resistance doesn't really start until they get baptized. And then listen to what he has to say. Islam is convinced That it is at baptism that its sons and daughters have become separated from their former way of life. Islam identifies baptism as the time when the believer has died to the old way and embraced a new worldview. Perhaps Islam understands what the West has forgotten. Perhaps Islam understands the meaning of baptism more profoundly than the church does. Baptism represents dying to sin, dying to self, and dying to an old way of living in community. Baptism represents a new alignment with the kingdom of God and a new way of relating to family and friends. Quite simply, baptism represents a new life. And you see, in the West, we're not persecuted, at least for now. And so we can take it for granted, this call to follow Jesus. And yet the warning here is very clear. Jesus says, if you are truly going to lay your life down, if you are going to follow me, if you're going to take your walk seriously, you need to know before it happens, you're going to face opposition. 
You're going to face troubles. You're going to face opposition because they hated me first. You're going to face unjust opposition that makes no sense whatsoever. But you are also going to stand firm because the Holy Spirit's going to enable you. It's a sobering text. I'm leaving you 25 times. I'm leaving you, but I'm not leaving you alone. Comfort each other in love and in my promise and in my presence. And then lean in because I got work for you to do, abundant, fruitful work. Stay connected to me, but you need to be prepared. The response from the world may not be great. In fact, some will actually hate you. And I don't know what each one of you in this room or those listening are facing in your life right now in your families, in your workplaces, in your schools, in your neighborhoods and on the sports field, wherever you do life, I don't know if you're bumping up against the beginning of what feels like soft persecution. We know that there could be troubling days ahead, and yet we also know who wins in the end. We know the Holy Spirit is ours to strengthen us and to help us be overcomers and to be victorious. It is indeed a very sobering text. I can see it on your faces particularly after last weekend, such a joyful text, and then to go, hate, 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 hate. And as we close off this section, in a couple of weeks, we'll get to the end of the paragraph. And Jesus there will say these words, I've said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. And then he says this, in the world you will have tribulation. He doesn't hide it from us. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. And the promise is, and in me you can overcome as well. So let's pray together, and then we'll go into a time of baptism. Lord Jesus, what a blessing it is uh, that you don't pull the bait and switch on us in any way, shape, or form. That as you had this conversation with your disciples, and as we read it and we take it to heart in our day, that you didn't say, come to me and life is going to be a rose garden. Come to me and everything is going to be easy street from here on out, peachy keen, your best life now. You didn't say that. You actually said, if you're going to walk with me, you're probably going to take some heat. You're probably going to have some opposition. And so, Lord, how desperately we need one another then. How desperately we need men and women in our life who love you as well and that we can turn to the community of faith, the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to say, I'm not alone in this. We take comfort in one another's love. We take comfort in your promise that you've gone to prepare a place for us. We take comfort in the presence of the Spirit. And we want to bear abundant fruit. But Lord, we also know that troubling days are ahead. And so Father, in a particular way, over these three weekends, as these 55 people go through the waters of baptism, we pray for them. That you would strengthen them and encourage them. And then for every man, woman, boy and girl in this room who has already been baptized, already make that public declaration of their faith, would you strengthen them as well? Would you encourage us in our walk of faith that you are indeed the one who is carrying us through and giving us that overcoming victory in Christ. And so we bless you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to talk a little bit about how baptism happens and takes place. If you're here visiting because a friend or a family member is being baptized, or if you've never been at Northview for baptism, a pretty simple, straightforward way 
Uh, we had a class a few weeks ago where all the people who are being baptized sat with a, a pastor and walked through uh, an understanding of what is Christian baptism all about? What is water baptism about? Why do we do it? Why are we commanded? And then after that, they, uh, you know, made their they took the opportunity to meet with a pastor or an elder uh, to share their testimony, their journey of faith, and then to make the decision to go through the waters of baptism. In the meanwhile, we did a video, recorded their uh, testimonies. We're going to play that video. You'll get to hear a little bit of their story. And once we're done hearing that video, then we're going to stand and we'll sing. And uh, we'll watch them on the screen. And if you happen to know somebody, so if you're connected to one of these people being baptized, really encourage you, come up here, gather around the, uh, the tank and be there close. There's just one little zone there for the camera. It's marked with tape, so just stay out of that zone. If you don't, somebody will knock you over. Um, but let the camera do its work. But come and gather around and connect. Congratulate those people. Great, great, great uh, picture. Uh, it's really what we've already talked about. Uh, what does water baptism, what does believer's baptism, Christian baptism represent? It represents two things, my union with Jesus Christ and my union with his people. I have been buried with Christ. I've died with him, buried in the water, raised to newness of life, a picture of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And baptism throughout the entire history of the church has been the thing that acknowledges, and I'm part of this family. I've come to Christ, and I've come to his people, to his family. And so we celebrate both those things as we come to baptism. So let's just pray for these people. Father, I pray for these individuals even now as they share their testimonies with us as they go through the waters of baptism. May you bless and encourage and strengthen them. And Lord, I want to pray a particular prayer for them because I know from history's speaking that often in the days following a public declaration of faith is a time when the enemy pulls out all the stops. And so, Lord, we pray a hedge of protection around them that you would guard them from the evil one, that any words of accusation or doubt or condemnation or fears or struggles or temptations that come to them because they have publicly declared before the church and in the heavenly realms, the, the news being made known in the heavenly realms, Colossians tells us, it goes out to the angels and the demons. They're hearing, they're seeing. And so, Lord, if they face struggles, we are asking that you would guard them and that they would be filled with joy and peace and overcoming victory in these coming days. So, Lord, we want to celebrate with them under your glory and our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.